everybody. Welcome into the back room. This is going to be a really great episode, and it's going to be a great episode for two reasons. One, we have Ruth Bengiat returning, but we're also going to be doing a live taping of our chat with Ruth tonight. So we will get to that shortly. It's going to be most of this episode. We're excited about that. But first, let me thank you for tuning in today. We appreciate you listening, and we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com and or post on our social media and we'll read some feedback next time. And if you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe and rate and review and you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. So let's get to our two big things. It's been a crazy week. It's getting crazier. Um, It's really one big thing. It's all kind of glopped together. But Donald Trump, he won in New Hampshire and here's his victory speech. Who the hell was the imposter that went up on the stage before and like claimed a victory? She did very poorly. At- you know, we won New Hampshire three times now, three. We, we win it every time. We win the primary, we win the generals. This is not your typical victory speech, but let's not have somebody take a victory when she had a very bad night. I find in life you can't let people get away with bull****. Okay, you can. You just can't do that. And when I watched her, the fancy dress that probably wasn't so fancy come up, I said, what's she doing? We won. Did you ever think that she actually appointed you, Tim? And think of it, appointed, and you're the senator of his state, and she endorsed me. You must really hate her. No, it's, uh, it's a shame. It's a shame. Uh-oh. I just love you. No, that's, that's why he's a great politician. And just a little note to Nikki. She's not going to win. She's not going to win. But if she did, she would be under investigation by those people in 15 minutes. And I could tell you five reasons why already. Not big reasons. A little stuff that she doesn't want to talk about. I don't get too angry. I get even. I mean, there's so much wrong, so much wrong with that. And that was a victory speech. Can you imagine what his speech would have been if he fucking lost? I mean, the total lack of graciousness and just excitement over having won and the inability to just take your victory, show some class and move on. So you have the unconscionable reality that this man is actually pissed off that someone's claiming victory when they lost. I mean, a, a vote for him is a vote for cruelty. Hands yeah, down. It's shizzle. just disgusting. Yeah, I mean, you asked what the speech would be like if he had lost. That would have been the same speech. <laughs> Pretty much. Well, it probably would have been more cruel to Jen's point. But, I mean, how dare he talk about claiming victory and bullshit. Bullshit. He's been spewing bullshit for the last three and a half years since the election and claiming victory when he lost. So that was pretty rich. I just don't think the crowd that he needs to win over that he didn't get last time, the suburban moms, the moderate Republicans, the independents, women, you know, that dress comment. Like, what, what, what was that about? Like, this is a fucking guy who wears the same blue suit, white shirt, and red tie every fucking day of his life, and he's criticizing. What did it even mean? And none of it actually fits to make room for his diaper. <laughs> <laughs> Good one, Maddie. Um, but I mean, it's like so, it's so misogynistic and just demeaning towards women, and so 
Keep it up, Don. Just keep doing that shit. I feel really, really sad for Tim Scott. That mm-hmm. was the most humiliating political moment I think I've seen since Mitt Romney sitting in that restaurant with Trump with the look on his face like, yeah, I'm with a fucking monster because I want to be in his cabinet. Yeah, slap me now. I, I'd feel bad for him if I thought he was any better than that, but I never thought he was better than what he just did. But that particular moment where the fealty was so on display, it was vomitous. But he does I, have I, a girlfriend. Yeah, so did, so did Corky St. Clair in Waiting for Guffman. Uh, Nikki's not going to win. She's not going to win. But you know what Nikki's doing right now? I almost feel like sending her some money because she is going to drive him fucking insane for the next five weeks. And the reason she's going to drive him insane because she's finally got her mojo and she understands how to get under his skin. Mm-hmm. And the way to get under Donald Trump's skin is to just refute all of the hyperbole that he's known for about his own life and his own success. So all she needs to just keep doing is saying, you're not as smart as you are. You're not as rich as you are. You're not as successful as you are. You're not as honest as you are. You're not even as tall as you are. (laughs) Your weight's a lie. Like nothing about you is real. You're a total fraud. She should just hammer that shit home every single time she opens her mouth. I, I'm I'm going to guess that she's not going to do that because... Oh, I think she will. She's, I'll, I'll, she's I, on that road right now. And she's been doing it with strength and, yeah. and gr- in, in like in a way, grace. Yeah, you're, you're, your mental acuity isn't what it is. You're an old man. You're making mistakes. Uh, let's sure. go to that. Let's, let's play that clip. If you look recently, there have been multiple things. I mean, he claimed that Joe Biden was going to get us into World War II. I'm assuming he meant World War III. He said that he ran against President Obama. He never ran against President Obama. He says that I'm the one that kept security from from the Capitol on January 6th. I was nowhere near the Capitol on January 6th. But, Margaret, you don't be surprised if you have someone that's 80 in office. Their mental stability is going to continue to decline. That's just human nature. I don't know if he was confused. I don't know what happened. But it should be enough to send us a warning sign. So if she continues to do that, and she continues to talk about how much of a loser he is, which she has started to do, that he's cost the party everything, and she amps it up with the indictments and takes it even a notch further and says he's a total fraud, he's not as rich as he says he is, all that stuff I said before, she is going to drive him out of his mind. And he is going to continue to dig his grave deeper He'll win the nomination. It's very unlikely, very unlikely, although I'll never say never, (laughs) but very unlikely she can pull this out. But what she is going to do is set the table for the general so that all the people who didn't vote for him last time, who he desperately needs, he's going to push all of those people further and further away. That's my opinion. I think you're optimistic. I think she also has an eye on 2028. And she does believe that Trump could win, as anyone should believe that he could win. And she'll only push so hard because she'll know that if he does win, she's going to be uh, needing his base in 2028. And I don't think she'll be too harsh on him because of that. Yeah, well, I mean, I personally think she's already jumped in the water. Like, it's, there's no turning back now. She is, to me, more aggressive than Chris Christie was. The water she's jumping in, though, is all about age, and that way it's a, it's well, a double win be, for her. She's being a loser. She's named all the things that he's cost the party, and she is skirting around the trials. 
but I think she's going to amp that up. That's my opinion. You, you we'll could see. be right, but I don't think she's going to stay away from that stuff. I think she's at this point she has nothing to lose, and she knows. Look, I think deep down in her heart she knows that he becoming president is the worst thing that can happen to this country. And so in her own little way, I think she, what she's going to do is make it easy for Biden to win. Maybe not 100% consciously, but it'll be easier for her to run against some other Democrat in 28, to your point, than to maybe have us become a dictatorship where there is no 28. I mean, the only thing about 2028 is she might do well in the general election, but she still has to get past the primaries in 2028, mm-hmm. and she can't alienate the base for that yeah. reason. Voters have a very short memory, and I think what happens in the next six weeks, which I think is her window to stay in this race, people largely won't remember four years from now. Um, he is in, in court in New York, losing his fucking shit a few minutes ago, walking out of court the minute Eugene Carroll's attorney started speaking and reminding them what a dipshit he is. Uh, the judge had to admonish him and I think even threaten to have him put in jail if he doesn't stop this bullshit. Uh, we could get a verdict tonight, mm-hmm. which I hope is massive because the real question is what amount needs to be levied on him that will make him stop? What is going to make him shut his mouth? Five million? No. Ten million? No. Hundred million? Hundred and fifty million? Yeah. So I just hope that jury comes through and understands the magnitude here. I mean, whatever it is, he can just fundraise and wipe it away and whatever. Like it's he'll appeal. Yeah, it's it's this is it's a distraction. It it pumps up his base. Yep. Pump up the jam. Pump it. Pump up up that base. It's all about the base. It's all about the. And the other thing that was interesting this week is that he is so firmly in control of Congress and the Senate on this border bill. So he wants to... How many Republicans we have listening now, Jen? Andy. Are some we done? sad news. Are we done? <laughs> oh, my God. They're all gone? Are you saying they're all gone? Yeah. Oh, fuck. All right. If you happen to be a Republican out there, even moderate or even independent, all right, listen to me. This man wants the economy to crash and the stock market to crash. And now he wants the border crisis, the one that he and all the Republicans keep saying it's such an emergency and it's such a threat to our very existence here in America. But but now they're all okay. He's okay pushing it out. So that becomes a political issue in November. This is who they are. This is who he is. Just to make it easy for him, easier for him to go up against Joe Biden. They don't want to give Joe Biden a win or they don't want to give America a win. That's that's who you guys, if you're out there listening, that's who you are wanting to be president again. And then last but not least, Peter Navarro sentenced to four months for defying the January 6th subpoena. <laughs> the judicial system. Um, all right, let's get to our winners and losers. My winner, new hope with the Israeli hostage release along with a 60-day ceasefire between Hamas and Israel are underway. My loser, Trump for blowing up the delicate immigration compromise in the Senate. My winner is Joe Biden this week because we saw that the U.S. economy remained shockingly robust. My loser, unfortunately, are all of the women who live in the 14 states that banned abortion after the Dobbs case. There have been 64,000 pregnancies resulting from rape since July 1st, 2022, after this was banned. My winner is Nikki Haley who has gone on the warpath, aggressively attacking Donald Trump, where he's most insecure, vulnerable, and threatened 
by being a strong, smarter, more articulate woman who won't be bullied. My loser, the Ohio Senate, which voted Wednesday to override Republican Governor Mike DeWine's veto of a ban on gender-affirming care for minors. That brings us to the Weekly Rant. So I am starting to feel more confident than ever that there is no way in this world that Donald Trump can win in November. I've been saying for the longest time now that his base has shrunk, leaving him mostly just the craziest of the crazies, that the math doesn't work, and that it's simply illogical to believe that more people, not less, would vote for him this year after having voted for Biden in 2020. Much of that was confirmed by the polling data and election results that came out of New Hampshire's Republican primary on Tuesday. Yes, Trump handily won by low double digits, but he did not win moderate Republicans, and he did not win independents. They went for Nikki Haley. Also, turnout was extremely low in both New Hampshire and in the recent Iowa caucuses. He had the smallest margin of victory in New Hampshire since George H.W. Bush in 1992, and enthusiasm for Trump that existed in 2016 and 2020 is no longer there. Enthusiasm, by the way, which he desperately needs in order to overcome the 2020 deficit and ride to victory this time. The truth is, Trump is more incoherent, more erratic, more dishonest, more cruel, and more dangerous than ever. And voters of all stripes and colors and political persuasions are simply fed the fuck up. And I'm not even talking about the legal and political shitstorm he's slow-mowing into the wind which can and will likely be the final nail in the coffin. If the events of the last few days are any indication of things to come, Trump is going to be more of an immature, sexist, misogynist, racist, deranged asshole than ever before between now and the next major Republican primaries, which start late next month in South Carolina, Michigan, and then March 5th on Super Tuesday. And as she has finally started to do this week, Nikki Haley will continue to attack Trump's age, his cognitive deterioration, his failures as president, and his massive criminality, all of which bruise his crippling insecurities and impulsively compel him to lash out nastier and more cruelly than ever, and which will continue to erode the critical constituencies he so desperately needs to win in the general election. To be sure, it's highly unlikely Haley can pull off this nomination in the end. But what she will do for America in defeat is set the table for President Joe Biden to levy yet another humiliating defeat on Trump in nine months. Okay, we are now going to switch over to our live taping with Ruth Ben-Ghiat. Welcome to the back room. (laughs) So welcome, everybody. The first thing I want to do is just read a short bio for Ruth. So those of you who are not familiar with her, become familiar with her. So Ruth is a professor of history at New York University. She writes about fascism, authoritarianism, and propaganda. She is the recipient of Guggenheim and other fellowships. She's an advisor to protect democracy. She's an MSNBC opinion columnist and television commentator and publishes Lucid, a newsletter on threats to democracy. Her latest book, Strongmen, Mussolini to the Present, looks at how illiberal leaders use propaganda, corruption, violence, and machismo, and how they can be defeated. So welcome, Ruth. Thank you. Great to see everyone. So the first thing I want to do is address the 800-pound gorilla in the room. So I want to know, uh, 
Oh, and by the way, for those of you who haven't paid attention to the news in the last couple hours, $83 million. So, all right. Don't want to leave out that point three. Uh, So hopefully this is just the start of holding him accountable. So the 800-pound gorilla, a year from tonight, will we have just finished our first week as an American dictatorship? I don't have a crystal ball, but many people would like us to think that his victory is inevitable. And that's really important because authoritarians depend on uh, the idea that they're invincible They're like a steamroller, and there's nothing you can do to stop their uh, victorious ascent to to political heaven, let's say. And uh, and one of my mantras, although I I study some of the worst people who ever lived, uh, and I I am in their heads, which is not a very nice place to be, I'm also an optimist about human nature, and I'm an optimist about the American people. And one of my mantras is never underestimate the American people. People thought Trump would win in 2020. Uh, there were surprises for po- in a positive way. The midterms, 2018, 2022, you know. So uh, it's never over till it's over. Um, and it's very important not to uh, abandon optimism and embrace fatalism because that's exactly what all of the psychological warfare that is being waged at us for years. No wonder we're all exhausted, right? Um, that's the mentality that they want us to be in. So we give up, and we think nothing we do is going to help. So, um, yeah, he has a chance of winning. He's he's captured the GOP as formidable resources, political resources, and the the CEOs and Davos have decided that he's going to win. So we're having all these messages he's going to win, but it's not clear. So we saw this week that, the RNC tried to pull a fast one and name him the presumptive nominee. That's part of this. Yeah. So when you yeah. see things like that, do you get worried that all of the people and institutions that he's co-opted, and, and we see what it's been like since 2020, they don't play fair. So again, it's like the conventional wisdom says, yes, you can look at different data that comes out of primaries. You can look at different election results and you can say on paper, it doesn't seem like there's a chance he could win. But when you don't play fair, anything can happen. How, how worried about that aspect of it are you, given what, you, what, what we've seen in the last few months? Well, I wasn't surprised at all because the GOP is, uh, is now an autocratic party. It is not a democratic party anymore. It's not interested in democracy. It depends on corruption, and by the way, the big lie, all the election denial, is a form of corruption, basically. Um, It's not just a belief, it's a form of corruption. It depends on threat and uh, physical violence, right? The the party in 2022, the the National Party, uh, and this is incredible, um, made a resolution that January 6th was, quote, legitimate political discourse. So the party has legitimized and validated a coup. And a a third of my book is about coups. And I never thought when I wrote it (laughs) that there would be a coup in America. Um, But having knowledge about coups and what happens to prepare them, prepare people to accept it, 
um, and the conditions that have to be in place for something like that, all the, all the elites and the foot soldiers. So I'm not at all surprised um, that they are um, anointing him. And one of the most disgraceful um, episodes was the first GOP debate. And this, was, this is an example, what I'm about to tell you, of how we can only understand what's going on in the GOP with authoritarian logic and authoritarian dynamics. So here we have a presidential race. They're, they're there to debate on the stage. And all of them but two, when asked, would they support their arrival, Donald Trump, even if he's a convicted felon, they raise their hands. In that moment, what are they doing? They're ritually humiliating themselves. They are taking away all of their power because they're running against him. Who does that? Well, again, as so many other things that happen, including Mike Pence, Trump tried to have him killed, and he's out there, like, agreeing with everything, right? These are not dynamics that you see in democracies. So, of course, they're, they're going to be... Uh, already having him be the presumptive nominee because everybody was on stage uh, debasing themselves. And just recently we saw uh, Tim Scott, right, who was insulted. So, again, this is, it's very painful to watch. It's ritual humiliation, and that's what Trump does best. And the whole cycle where he was publicly humiliated and then he said, I love you, I have many examples in my book of this, but they're in like Mobutu's Congo <laughs> or, you know, or Gaddafi's Libya. And, and one of the saddest things is that the reason people act that way in uh, real dictatorships, meaning one-party states, is if you don't act that way, you get killed, you fall out of a window, that's Putin's version, or you go to prison. What are the stakes here, right? May their political career may implode. Um, many of them are getting threatened now, so I don't want to make light of that. But it's, they're obeying in advance. They're humiliating themselves. Um, and that's an authoritarian dynamic. So well, you, you, you ask what are, the, what are the, the risks and the consequences. I mean, we saw how his lawyer walked into court and argued that his client should be allowed to use SEAL Team 6 to assassinate his opponent. So how much of a leap really is it from Libya and the Congo to here if certain scenarios play out? Like, how does a country like America become that someday? Well, actually, um, Trump is a, he's a superb propagandist. And what he's actually been doing uh, over now many years is, um, see, propaganda is not about getting people to believe one or two lies, like vaccines cause autism. It's about changing the way people think and feel uh, by changing the associations they make and changing their value system. So Trump has been getting people uh, to think of violence in a positive way. Ever since 2015, and this was the basis of my report for the January 6th committee, which I was very honored as a first-generation American to contribute. I was interviewed twice, I did a report. And I, I cataloged all the times he used his rallies since 2015 to talk about how in the old days you could beat people up. So he's been convincing Americans that violence is justified, that violence can even be more morally righteous. So once you're on that road, right, the other thing is that he's now really um, be 
because his legal troubles have you know, proliferated, he's now trying to convince Americans that a president should have immunity for everything and anything, even political assassinations. And it's like the Overton window. There are different phrases, the horizons of possibility. Autocrats specialize in um, getting people, in doing the unthinkable, but getting people to accept what was unthinkable and think it themselves and normalize it. That's what normalization is. So every time he gets up there and he talks about, yet, like, you know, oh, so who was, John Hannity was the one who introduced the dictator thing. Oh, people think you're going to be a dictator. Are you? And he fed it to him. And then Trump said, yeah, I'll be a dictator just for a day. And then all the media thing was about him being a dictator. So now in people's heads, the idea that Trump we need a dictator. And then you go to the rallies. You saw the footage from the rallies. Yeah, we need a dictator. So these people have absorbed the talking points. So he's leading them along to accept the ideas that have, uh, in other places and times, inspired dictatorships, right? It's not going to look like Mobutu's Congo because one-party states are less common today except, you know, communist China. Who, but he's also telling us over and over that the good leaders are the dictators, right? The head of China, the head of North Korea, like a totally criminal entity, um, murderous dictatorship. That's, those are the people he's holding up. So this is re-educating and conditioning Americans emotionally also to think that those, that is what is... Um, that's the kind of leadership that America should have. And this is an, an interesting element of this discussion, and one that's always fascinated me, because when you think about who serves in our military, it's not the wealth, kids of the wealthy, it's not ch children of privilege. It is the, the, the working class families, the middle class kids who go off and, and, and join the military. And so for... How many decades have we fought fascism and fought against tyranny and, and dictators and strong men? And so when I see people saying, yeah, maybe it's time for a dictator, how do you explain when their grandfathers and their fathers and maybe they themselves, like I don't understand how any vet, any, any military person could support Trump. Yeah, it's really hard. And if you want to make their heads explode which I try not to indulge myself too often, but you remind them that the, the valiant uh, young men who went off uh, to the battlefields of World War II to fight fascism, they were Antifa. Right. Like, how I far have we... I bet they love we, that. They don't like it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's, 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 it's been a whole re-education of Americans, and re-education means you have to forget things. Right? So it's not just, again, propaganda is about noise, like blah, blah, blah. It's also about silence. And so we see with January 6th, the way they've been successful at, at turning this awful, violent coup attempt into a patriotic act where there wasn't really much violence. And all of the GOP has decided to forget. <laughs> Everybody's decided to forget. And that's also how you somehow erase the the legacy of all these people who, who served, you know, the cause of defeating fascism abroad, mm. right? 
And it's also how, I mean, the U.S. military, you know, we have a very double heritage, right, as a power in the world. Uh, I, one of my case studies in my book is, is Chile and a U.S.-backed coup, right? There were many in Latin America. But um, now Trump is, and Michael Flynn, who's a very, very dangerous individual working overtime, they are openly talking about using the military against civilians. So that's what you did in those military coups. The military was turned against its own people. And that's what Lafayette Square was about. That was a test case. That was another, like, um, you know, trial balloon, right? So that, that's very, that really concerns me because we have the most powerful military in the world. And what happens, what they're going to be asked to make decisions and they're going to be asked to make um, decisions of conscience if he comes back. Uh, and the case of Chile was very haunting to me uh, when I wrote about it because Chile was one of the last uh, countries to have a coup. And they saw one after another, uh, the countries around them were falling for military coups. And the military said, we're not going to do that. We're loyal to the Constitution. And there was a figure who was the equivalent of Mark Milley, chairman of the Joint, Joint Chiefs of Staff. And he was a staunch Democrat, a staunch you know, believer in the Constitution. And he was a smear campaign was formed to get rid of him so the coup could take place. And it was very contemporary. You could imagine that happening. And look what's happening with Milley. He, he says openly, well, if Trump comes in, I'm going to be on a list to be jailed or executed. And this guy, uh, Carlos uh, Prats, he ended up having to emigrate to Buenos Aires, and then he was killed by a car bomb. Um, and because there was no place for him, he was, he was uh, so... And this was the military that swore up and down that it would not become like the military of Brazil or the other countries. So it can happen. Um, and I am worried about those kinds of situations, those institutional reactions I'm really worried about. Well, I think it, we can all take comfort on some level that we now know what happened during the Trump years where, similar to what happened during the Nixon presidency, where he was just a drunk and they were like, don't, if he gives an order, make sure it goes through us first. There was that kind of thing with Trump. And so th this is another interesting part of the conversation because we know he loves strongmen. You know, all the people you mentioned, uh, Erdogan in Turkey, uh, Orban, Hungary. Would it be naive for us to think that because we have a pretty robust media, we have a strong judiciary, a judiciary that has ruled against him in his attempts to thwart democracy, uh, the military aspect of it, that are we just getting ourselves a little cuckoo over something that is really not likely to happen here? Um, it's, it is, it's, it's a good question, but unfortunately, um, one of the outcomes of my research is that, uh, which looks at 100 years of these situations around the world, <clears throat> just like in the Chile case, where they were like, it can't happen here. We're not going to be, you know, our military is not going to do that. Every people who was uh, confronted with these charismatic demagogues thought it couldn't happen in their country. Everybody went through this denial. So in Germany, it's, you know, everybody is a famous case, right? Germany was one of the most sophisticated uh, nations in the world. Not science, technology, graphic design, architecture, everything. It was amazing. And people were like, 
who's this ranting lunatic? He can't possibly be taken seriously. That can't happen to us. And and then other other even when a dictator does come in, for example, another example, the the, the Italian Jews under fascism. Many Jews were fascists because they said to themselves, um, well, first, you know, Mussolini was there a, de- a decade before Hitler. But even when Hitler came in, Mussolini did not persecute Jews. Indeed, a lot of uh, German Jews who had to leave, they went to Italy, believe it or not. They went to another dictatorship. Life is complicated. Um, this happens a lot if you study exiles from dictatorships. Sometimes it just works out they go to a different dictatorship, which for us might be like, why would they do that? But these Food's better. Food's better. So they stayed there, and but Italian Jews said, we're going to be safe here under fascism. Mussolini's not going to come after us. He's not Hitler. So we, it's the human capacity to, to dwell in denial. Because if we don't dwell in denial, it means we might have to do something about it. And all of the threat that the Trump camp and all of its levels and all of the, the thugs, the medium-level thugs, the elite thugs, they're all organized around threatening people because they don't want you to do, to, they don't want you to feel that it's worth it to speak out now. So, that, so they're trying to get you to self-censor. Uh, and so many people think it's easier to be in denial, that it can't really happen here. I think that is, is always a fallacy, actually. So this week we saw, and you spoke about this and you tweeted about it, what's happening in Texas with Greg Abbott. Uh, yeah. Is that a warning sign when governors start to be defiant like that and ignore court, Supreme Court <laughs> rulings and just say, screw it, we're going you know, to do it anyway? Like, is that the beginning? Like, if that was 10 governors doing that, would that really be a problem in this country? Well, now they're joining. There are other governors who are at least pledging rhetorically um, support for, for Texas. But this is one of these things, like, if you looked at it with the eyes of another country, like, really? Um, but the Texas GOP, so a month after the national GOP said that January 6th was legitimate political discourse, the Texas GOP did something that I think about, like, not every day, but once a week. <laughs> um, they passed a resolution that said that Biden is a, quote, acting president. He's an illegitimate president. Now, if you study coups, it's like acting, okay, like he's going to pop off any time now, like he's only there temporarily, what does that mean? But he, they do not accept, and I, I've, I've written about this, I've talked to people in my newsletter a lot, um, you have to, what does this mean? This is why I say the GOP is an autocratic party. They're not in democracy anymore. It means they do not accept the federal authority. They don't accept his authority as commander-in-chief. He's illegitimate for them. And this is 2022, and so I see this now, what's going on, where they're openly just being insubordinate. I mean, they're dangerous subversives, right? Or you could say they're secessionists. They're, you can use different words and different frameworks to analyze this, but it all goes back to the fact they literally do not accept Biden's authority as commander-in-chief. So now people are tweeting about you know, a constitutional crisis, right? But they want, they want this 
everything the GOP is doing, and, and GOP including the lawyers who go to courts, the governors, is to chip, chip, chip at the legitimacy of democratic institutions. And look at the number they've done on Biden, right? They want people to think of him, to have no respect for him whatsoever, to have no respect for courts that are in a democratic justice system. So you lie to the judges, you just, you know, you, you just, you just lie constantly. And every, you're chipping away at the integrity of the institutions of democracy and anybody who's working within them. So that's, that's, they're gone. They're already acting as though they are an autocracy, as though they were in power, chipping away at a democracy is another way to put it. And if the GOP had a foreign policy, right now, it would be just supporting autocrats. So they're like an autocratic state. They're acting like the states that I study. They're doing all the things. They're like acting like Mussolini when he was a prime minister uh, before he became a dictator, and he was chip, chip, chip every day at democracy. Um, some of the same stuff, like uh, verbatim quotes of you know, what he used to do and what GOP is doing now. So. so I'm going to put my chicken little hat back on for a second. So this ties back to the conversation we had a few minutes ago about the military, because, okay, if you, if you look at the, the, the Republican infrastructure and you look at the governors and you look at the defiance and the subversiveness, so if they could just figure out a way to co-opt the military, mm -hmm. then... They're then, trying really hard. Then, then they're there, right? Like, yeah. there's, there's such an undercurrent of hatred for not just Biden, but the rule of law and the constitution and that all they need is some force. And so again, to me, unlikely, but when you start to think about how many people in this country feel that way, and you realize how many people in the military feel that way, and how many people in law enforcement are Trump supporters. Um, What's very interesting, uh, a new nefarious 21st century thing going on, uh, if you can't get the official military to back your authoritarian takeover, uh, because our military did not go along with it, um, what do you do? You have a civilian army of thugs, right? And so Trump has been, that's part of what he's been doing for years with the violence and this. He's been cultivating, and this is, he's, it's a cult, right? He's a cult leader. And and of course, we are uniquely suited for this because of our gun policies and our tolerance for anti-government extremists, all that awful stuff, the militias. So all these people, he created a big tent for all the extremists at the beginning in terms of ideologies, hatreds. They all could come in, right? That was, he was going to protect them all and love them. He says, I love you, right? He loves the most like thuggish people. So all of this came you know, home for him when he needed them. And I see, I study personality cults too, right? I study these leaders. And January 6th was many things, but it was also a rescue operation of a, a leader cult. He was in distress. And we know from studying uh, personality cults that people who are attached and bonded to these leaders, if the leader's in trouble, they become very volatile. Because their whole world is, that's the cult part, their whole world is, their identity is bound up. And, and so they can be manipulated very easily. And so what does he do? He calls them all there with lots of help, right? 
And he announces, you know, if you don't fight like hell, we won't have a country anymore. He's in distress. Um, their icon, their idol is going to disappear. He says to them, if I don't uh, win, he said not on January 6th, but earlier, you'll never see me again. He knows he's an expert manipulator, expert. And so these people are like, oh my God, we've got to like come to the Capitol with arms. And then who replicated this um, didn't work as well, but Bolsonaro, right? He couldn't get the military uh, to play his game, so he had a civilian army of thugs. He didn't incite them openly like Trump. Um, in fact, he was in Florida. Like, he wasn't even there. Um, <laughs> it's like a whole other chapter. But um, that's the new playbook. But the prize is, of course, he needs the military. And Michael Flynn is, should be in jail. Uh, he's trying very, very hard to radicalize as many uh, military people as possible. But I actually, um, I, I'm not convinced the military would um, go out and shoot civilians. Law enforcement's different. So I'm going to be giving a, it's called the Bancroft Lecture to the Naval in Annapolis, like two weeks before the election, to 500 midshipmen. So... I'm going to be thinking about these dilemmas that the military might find themselves in um, a lot before then. So not to ruin everybody's night, but let's say, let's say a year from now he is the president. What is your most realistic view of what that would look like? Um, you. You know, he was he was rehearsing a lot. Of, a lot of the things that you saw in Trump 1.0 um, would be hugely accelerated and souped up. Now, their talk, you see, a lot of the things they talk about, we should take them seriously. The mass deportations, building camps. I'm very worried uh, Trump has, um, keeps talking about psychiatric institutions, and there are two reasons. One is, that, one is that I think he fears he's like, going to end up in one because he's not making sense anymore. But the other reason is he's saying stuff like Jack Smith, his nemesis, the special prosecutor, should end up in, uh, he, he calls it a mental, what does he call it, a mental home or something. And who used to do that? Fascists and communists, especially communists. That was one of the, if you didn't believe the propaganda of the state, if you became a dissident under communism, you were crazy and you were put away. And so he's, he's saying all these things to intimidate us. This is a psychological warfare. But I have no doubt that he would try. He, his people, he's got armies. This is Project 2025. Armies of very capable people, right, working to have a, pu a you know, purge of the judiciary. I think that would happen. Um, they have the right. There are certain things they have the right to do. Then there'd be challenges in the courts. Right, but they have the right to start in a splashy way because that's what they wanted to do the first time. In fact, the so-called Muslim travel ban, which was implemented on purpose in a chaotic manner to, to kind of sow chaos and make people disoriented, it was actually one, I have this in my book, it was one of uh, 200 executive orders that were supposed to be implemented in the first month. So this was the brainchild of Bannon and Stephen Miller, who's a total fascist, Stephen Miller. Um, sorry, he comes from, like, where I come from, California, Santa Monica. can't believe it. It's like, 
Um, but he's and he's back he's so there. So mellow. He's he's truly he's truly a fascist. There there. If you've studied fascists for decades, there are people who tick the boxes like, and he's one of them. So. It would be more threatening the press. It would be more using lawsuits. Uh, you know, that's a big thing that autocrats do. Uh, Erdogan has sued, um, I think we're up to 40,000 people now. For, they're called insult suits, if you like insult the leader. Um, could be a social media post. Uh, so these, these harassment, legal harassment, and the, the, they all do that. And Trump is famously litigious, right? Really? Yeah, really. But, but, you know, often the cases get dismissed, right? Uh, I'll tell the story. Um, uh, he sued CNN. He sued CNN many times, but he did a very large suit. It was like, what, $300 million. And I, was, uh, in, I, was, I got an email that I had been uh, mentioned in this suit, um, like on page two of it. And I was like, why? Why am I mentioned? Um, because I'd written an op-ed, I'm a free, I was a freelancer, and of all the thousands and thousands of op-eds uh, that CNN publishes, my one pissed them off. And because it was about, I think the title was, Trump's big lie only worked because he told 30,000 smaller lies. They didn't like that. And it was exposing the mechanisms, uh, it's kind of some of the stuff I've said to you, how, you, you, how propaganda works. And yet the, the case was dismissed by a Trump-appointed judge. So you would have much more of that. And, you know, trying to get people to self-censor, trying to have corporate self-protection kick in, um, all of that would be hugely more, um, more active the second time. Just I have to ask you, is that the, one of the most satisfying parts of your life to know that you pissed off Donald Trump? <laughs> Yeah, I, I, yeah, it's it's. Um, I felt I felt uh, it was good to to know. It's it's information, and the way that I get all kinds of you know, like stuff thrown at me, and uh, his campaign spokesman uh, threatened me in the press uh, that my existence will be crushed, entirely crushed, if Trump comes back to the White House uh, because I talked about it. it was, uh, I was interviewed by the Washington Post when he was talking about vermin, like calling people vermin. And I talked about how that is pure fascist rhetoric and I gave examples. And then they went to his totally thuggish uh, campaign spokesman, this guy who comes from the wrestling world. And he said, those who talk like that will have their entire existence crushed when Trump comes back to the, so that's a threat, fine. But it, but, I, because I study this stuff, I've studied this stuff for years, and I study the processes and the mechanisms behind this. What is he trying to do? So I kind of depersonalize it. And yet it's good information to know what pisses them off. And, and for resistance, that's important to know. So you keep pissing them off. They think that it's going to make people like me be quiet. Instead, it's the opposite. I'm going to keep doing it, right? Because it's working. Back in the day when Twitter was Twitter, um, Donald Trump uh, blocked me on Twitter. And to this day, <laughs> Junior, Eric, and Ivanka blocked me. And I was... What'd you do? I wasn't being nice to them. 
And I was arguing with a friend once, and he was like, what are you doing on Twitter? Nobody gives a shit. And I was like, dude, the whole fucking family blocked me. Like, it was so, it was so gratifying. And to this day, like, if, if I was to show my resume, like, at the top, it would be like, Pissed off the entire Trump family, <laughs> so I, I wear that like a badge. That, like that a is, badge of honor, yeah, like that a is honor, a yeah. badge. Uh, and I actually made him through a lawsuit. Uh, was part of a lawsuit that made him unblock me. So that was like satisfaction 2.0. Yeah, there are those things. I was part of a um, an amicus brief, uh, the Pen Pen America uh, lawsuit <laughs> on the, for the First Amendment rights, and I signed on, uh, and that was that, and that. That had an effect. And yeah, so sure. there are things, you know, the legal, being part of legal recourse. Um, and, and the whole thing about, like, should we stay, you know, should we stay on fascistized Twitter now X? Um, I think, uh, you know, everybody has their own. I think it's, it's important to stay on there um, because if you vacate the field, then they've won. Now, it's not for yes, everybody. Some I people don't want to have the hassle of, of reams of hatred coming their way. Um, but I, I, I think, uh, just from my own studies of resistance and these things, I think it's important to, to be there and, and, and people in fact need you more than ever, um, there. And so that's, well, these, a, these are, these are strategy, you know, th- we're going to have more and more of these strategy conversations as institutions and platforms, there's pressure to conform. Well, this is a nice segue to my last question, which is about the media. How much responsibility do you place on the media for where we are today? And as an example, I'll just say, how long did it take them to say Trump's a liar? What if they had been different from the get-go? How much different do you think things would be today? Oh, hugely different. I mean, um, one of the saddest things is, and it's not just the media, it's more... uh, one, a, a, a huge milestone in our uh, destruction of our democracy was Donald Trump's speech, uh, January 23rd, 2016, 23rd or 24th. I could stand on Fifth Avenue and shoot someone, and I wouldn't lose any followers. I was in Washington Square Park. I got so freaked out by this because I knew what this meant. I ran home, and I did a CNN op-ed on this. This, this was a total red flag. He was saying that he was capable of violence. It's like Duterte, right? Duterte, the same. These are the people who do this. Duterte said to Filipinos, "Don't vote for me because it's going to be bloody," and it was bloody. Like he ended up being investigated by the ICC, the International Criminal Court. It was so bloody, right? So Donald Trump was saying he's personally capable of violence. He approves of violence, and and also channeling the Western, you know, Fifth Avenue. Is he knows how to like traffic in these cultural narratives. But he was also saying he would be loved for his violence. That's why the part, I won't lose any followers. He, he's really a genius with these things. So in the two weeks after that happened, so that was, a, that was, an, uh, that was a, I'm thinking Italian, Svolta, that was a turning point. And had people arranged themselves to protect democracy right after that, because who, who says stuff like that? Nobody says stuff like that in a democracy. But instead, within two weeks, Jeff Sessions became the first major person in the GOP to endorse him and showed up at a Trump rally and put on the hat, kissed the ring, put on the hat. But also, 
he went on, Trump went on Jimmy Fallon's comedy show. And Jimmy Fallon ruffled his hair and treated him like a normal person. And it was not discussed. So, and it wasn't the headline. I mean, maybe some papers had it in the headline, but not in a way that, so that's an example. And there have been many of these since. And also, you know, even now there's like a reluctance to call things out bluntly. So when I go on TV, I'm very blunt. Um, but I'm not the editor of a major newspaper, right? There's a little bit denial, a little bit not wanting to lose advertisers, uh, a little bit uh, what we saw in Berlusconi's Italy. That's very, if you read Strongman, you go back to the Berlusconi parts. Uh, there was corporate self-protection that, that was uh, very important to allow Berlusconi to get away with. Trump has four indictments. Berlusconi had like over 20 like, unbelievable corruption. You couldn't even, like, get your head around the amount of corruption. People were like, you know, what trial is this? His last corruption trial? But the corporate self-protection is very strong, and we see this happening now. So the media is part of this, right? And the fact that so many um, Small papers are disappearing, and then corporate chains are buying out, like happened in Baltimore recently. Or right, you know, it's very, it's not a good situation. So they, it's not that they have responsibility for ruining democracy. It's that the the media environment is not favoring bold action to take to take taking bold action on behalf of democracy. The headlines would look very different. Um, and this old model of, like, uh, we shouldn't be biased, it's, it's getting in the way. They're working with a playbook. I guess the, the takeaway is that they're working with a playbook suitable for democracy, and we're not in, the GOP is not in democracy anymore. So we're in, actually, a, a kind of limbo land in between democracy and something else. But the media is still stuck in its old playbook. I, uh, I was in a democracy and journalism, a really good conference that Hannah Nicole Jones sponsored. And this, the purpose was to talk about that. Why can't they get a new playbook? They're so slow to change. So in that sense, yes, they're, they're not helpful. So I'm going to close out this part of the conversation by just riffing on something you said. Uh, which just illustrates how crazy things have become. He, you know, nine years ago, he said, I could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and not lose any support. Now he's saying, I shouldn't even get arrested or prosecuted for it. And that's how close we are to just absolute lunacy in my book. But let's take some questions. I was going to say, I haven't been drinking during January, but you might drive me to it. Do you see a correlation, I I can think of many of the dictators that you've mentioned, uh, certainly in my lifetime, do you see a correlation between dictatorship and mental illness? Oh, dictators and mental illness? Yes. Um, Yeah, in my book I don't use, um, I don't use like words like narcissism, but uh, there's a very distinct uh, personality profile. Um, And unfortunately for us, Trump has exactly the same personality. Um, as almost all of these people. They're, they're kind of sociopathic, they're narcissistic, they're manipulators, and they're so pathological that their governments are pathological. They're dysfunctional 
there's been such a investment in the myth of authoritarian efficiency. It's can I use you such a, it's a shit show behind the scenes. What? It's constant hiring and firing, and it's just chaos because they are chaotic. They are chaotic. They're impulsive. They don't listen to any critics. You know, two days after Putin invaded Ukraine, uh, I wrote an op-ed for MSNBC saying this isn't going to go well for Putin because he didn't he didn't listen to anybody. They don't listen. They just think they have all the answers. And so those all these things I'm saying correspond to uh, certain you know, certain mental dispositions which are not good for, uh, for leadership, if you can put it that way. Whether, they're, whether we're going to say they're mentally ill, I, I, I don't, I'm not, you know, I don't know. I mean, uh, whether they're mentally ill, but they're not, they should be no, most of the people who become dictators should be uh, not allowed uh, anywhere close to power. And a lot of them are criminals. Like Mussolini was a serial rapist, uh, he, he raped thousands of women, um, and they're allowed... It's like Jeffrey Epstein coming to power and using... That's what... Yeah, well, that's what... That's in my machismo chapter. Uh, it was horrible to write. Um, but these are profoundly destructive and criminal people who are able to get the reins of power, and then they arrange governance to um, meet their own personal needs, whether it's ripping people off for so they can have financial gain or, you know, sexual pleasure. Whatever it is, that's the kind of pathology. Uh, and it repeats. The point is it repeats uh, in, in these people. My question is, in history, if you go back, has there ever been anyone in the same kind of position that Trump is in today who didn't become a dictator, who got turned back? Um, I mean, well, we just saw uh, in Poland um, now that the prime minister who had to leave um, was not, he was a far-right populist. He's actually an international banker. This is yet another scam, the, popu- the, the populist scam, like they're against the globalists, they're against George Soros. Half of these people are like international bankers. Like Trump is the biggest globalist possible. His whole business model is... you know, laundering money for foreign criminals and licensing his name to to be on foreign entities. That's like, and and U.S. That's, he's a total globalist. So in in, uh, Poland, uh, the Law and Justice Party was voted out of power after like seven years. Uh, There was a mass mobilization, uh, optimistic messaging, March of a Million Hearts, and... um, so he, you know, he wasn't uh, a demagogue, and that probably helped to, to get him out of power. Um, he didn't have that kind of bond with the people. When you have these charismatic demagogues and they bond with people, it's very difficult to break the bond. It, it, it really is. It's hard to get through to them. I'm sure some of you here have people in your family who you, you can't, they're like, they're like brainwashed, right? Um, it's difficult, right? But in places where um, you, you don't have that kind of leader, but you have everything else going on, they can be defeated. Um, and, you know, often dictators do themselves in. They're their own worst enemies. And we're living through this, like, incredible historic struggle 
where every time a court hands Trump a victory, it's amazing. It's amazing for democracy, right? So, so I, I think I'm, I'm not, I'm optimistic, actually. I've said all these things that are like, oh my God, I'm, I'm not going to do January anymore. But I'm, I'm optimistic. If we do dodge this bullet, hopefully, um, what can we implement or what should the government implement to try to um, talk sense to these people that you can't, I mean, how, what is the strategy? Yeah. Um, I write about this a lot in, um, I don't have much about this in Strongman, but in my newsletter, Lucid, like I chose the name Lucid for clear thinking. Um, I write a lot about uh, how do you, how do you get through to people? And I have interviewed uh, people like Stephen Hassan, who's a cult specialist. And, you know, a lot of, it's very interesting because the recommendations are the same, whether people come from the study of cults like Stephen Hassan or disinformation specialists or people who study authoritarian leader cults like me. And, and that is, as much as we want, may want to never speak to these people again. I mean, my mother was radicalized during the pandemic. It was like, you know, you'd be, if they had the old fashioned phone, we'd be holding the phone away, you know, or, or hanging up on her, which I did. That's not, that's not the right approach. You're <laughs> that's every conversation with my mother, by the way. Yeah, it's like, because then they go further into their, into their, you know, silos or whatever. And so what everybody says from all these different points of view, you, you have to keep the connection going. You talk about non-political things because sooner or later, these people do emerge. Um, and, and I know people who, whose, whose spouses have finally started to wake up that, you know, Trump, Trump is too, too toxic. And you have to be there for them. If you've, if you've cast them off, then you're not there for them. And, and, and the other thing, the reason this is so delicate is we also know from research that when people are waking, I'm going to use the, the, the image of waking up. It's not totally right, but... When they're waking up to come back to reality, if they start realizing they've been conned, they've been duped, they get more defensive at first. And, and this is, there's sociological studies about people who have actually been, you know, been defrauded, like not even just political things. It's like a human nature thing. And they become more defensive. And so that's a very delicate moment. So you can't come on them like, with judgment. You can't condemn them. You can't make them feel shame because all these studies, they're very afraid of being shamed. So you got to, it's like incredible patience, right? You got to leave them to come in their own time. Now, some of you are like, well, we don't have time, <laughs> right? We don't have time. These people got to wake up now um, because, and the saddest thing, and I do have this in the con con conclusion of Strongmen, they love him and they put their trust in him and they don't realize that he couldn't care less about them. And, and all of these people, to go back to your, your, the, the psychological question, they have, I call it a use and discard philosophy. And we see this with Trump, everybody, even his own family. Uh, so they, they love him and he tells them he loves them, but so it takes them a long time to realize that he didn't give a crap about them, right? So I remember in, uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, I did a, um, an interview with HuffPost with this guy, Christopher Matthias, who follows the far right. 
And I said, um, Trump doesn't care if you live or die. And this was the, the pandemic. This was like the pandemic was raging. People got so angry <laughs> because it was so bleak, right? Like, what do you mean he doesn't care if we live or die? But they don't. And Putin doesn't care if like 500,000, you know, Russians have crappy weapons and no food. He doesn't care, right? And Netanyahu doesn't uh, totally care about the hostages. Um, you know, these people don't care about anyone but themselves. And when you have a pathological person like that projected onto, especially like the U.S. with nuclear power, all that, it's, it's, a, it's very scary. It's very we scary. We saw that when, right when he became president. He didn't want to let the cruise ship out on the yes. West Coast. You know? And the other thing, the last thing I'll just say, this type of personality, they don't recognize any boundary between public and private. So was I surprised that Trump was keeping uh, classified documents in his bathroom? No. That's, like, that's what they do. That's what they do. It's all theirs. It's, it's, a, it's, it's called a proprietary mode of governance. Um, and that's why they don't feel they're accountable. It's all theirs. They can do anything they want. And that's why Trump is like, Kim Jong-un, he can do anything he wants. That's what I want, you know. But, but to his question, not to make a joke of this, but it does speak to some kind of mental illness. Why the bathroom? <laughs> like, that just seems like something a crazy person would do. <laughs> right? Like, he has no other rooms in Mar-a-Lago to put him in? Well, isn't... Well, who knows? I mean, I, yeah, I... Go I try to figure out Trump, right? Um, I wanted to follow up on the answer you gave to the media question, because without a doubt, the media definitely enabled Trump, definitely in 2016, and some would argue in 2020. And I think you used some sort of, I can't remember exactly, but some terminology like we were applying normal standards to a, a yeah. really abnormal situation. Could the same be said about the electorate and the sort of apparatus of laws? And should we, yeah. in, within legal framework, rethink how we approach it, it, him, and everything from like Greg Abbott to Trump yeah. and just sort of rethink how we approach it? Absolutely. It's a good, that's a great uh, question and great comment. In fact, if you, you know, they're already uh, discussing, you know, there's reforms to amendments of the con. There's certain things about our system. If you look at them with the eyes of somebody who expects the worst, because you know, for example, our ele the Electoral College. Now, there have always been critiques about it because it's elitist, right? It's like, dates from a different era. That's not our era. I look at it and I'm like, oh, anytime you give a small number of people uh, so much responsibility, those people can be threatened. That's how I look at things because that's what authoritarians do. Or another, is it the 20th Amendment? The one that we, we shouldn't have so much time in between. Um, again, you're looking at it from the Look at everything from the point of view of autocracy. If you've got too many months in between an election and the person taking office, all kinds of stuff can happen. It's not safe. And we learned that. Other countries don't have so much time because it's not safe. 
So those are, those are, I just, but our whole, I think that, and this is also your question, what do we, and this is going on, you know, protect democracy. There's many, many um, amazing people who are at work rethinking uh, our, our legal systems, our institutions, with a view to protecting uh, us for the future if we get through this, or even if we don't get through this, right? But it's like, a, it's a huge reckoning. We're in an hour of reckoning um, in, at every level. And so it's actually, it's, it's unpleasant to live through, but it's actually transformative and it can lead to a, a more just America. That's, that's the positive spin, right? But thank you. My family fled a dictatorship. Um, I'm also first generation, and quite frankly, I'm terrified. Yeah. What would happen to those of us who are people of color and who are first generation? Yeah, that, so there's a reason, I mean, the GOP is running on immigration, quite, quite apart from the border stuff, all the talk about scaling up deportations, um, you know, and, and now, you know, the whole attacks also on, uh, before it was critical race theory, now it's DEI, and now there's this newer, uh, just disgusting campaign that's very well thought out, though, to, oh, black pilots, uh, we, don't, we don't want any black pilots, and they're choosing sectors that are uh, where the stakes of somebody being incompetent are high, like a pilot. Think about it. And then teachers, they're groomers. Our children, what are they doing when we're not with them? It's all very, very diabolically planned out. So they're weaponizing, you know, this is what Trump's always done from the very beginning, weaponize hatred for non-white immigrants, right? And the whole great replacement theory. And here we can plug in Fox News, where Tucker Carlson mentioned great replacement theory 400 times on his show. So that's another conditioning that, um, and it's a huge affront to the idea of multiracial democracy, right? Instead, you want to deport, you know, take away birthright citizenship. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's, a it's a huge concern, and many people write to me um, uh, whether they should consider leaving or going into exile, what to do. And it's particularly poignant for, uh, you know, if people fled a dictatorship, Right? A lot of people, the, you may find interesting, uh, I started talking about Trump and Bannon and white nationalism in 2015. I was one of the very first people to be out there calling them out. And the first people who wrote me were people who, whose families had fled dictatorships. And they were like, oh, I see Trump and it's not good. Because they knew what he was very early on. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, you know what's so, the, the last thing I'll say is what's also so poignant is that we had uh, record numbers of Latinas, people of color, who were elected during the midterms. We also had, like, yeah, let's remember that. So, so this is where the news is, um, we're not, we're remembering certain things but not others. But there's a whole history of amazing progress that's happened. Like, you know, there were record numbers of LGBTQ people elected. Um, every, every metric uh, was, I, it's been a while since I looked at all the data, but I wrote about it for my newsletter. It's incredible 
right? And that was just, that was like 2022. So we have this in us. It doesn't have to go this way. Um, but of course it's scary. Of course it's scary. Um, I'm getting, I get emails all the time, you know, because I'm, again, I'm first generation and you're going to be deported. When are you going to be deported? You know, all of this stuff. So I'm not, you, you can't take it lightly, but it's really important that we hang on to the facts and, and go and read, go and if, when you're feeling down, go and read articles about what happened in those midterms. It's our most recent elections. They're incredible. Incredible people came to power. Oh, goody. We're going to get to end on a good note. Yay. Thank you. Thank you, Ruth. Thank you, Andy. Thank you. This episode of The Back Room was edited and produced by me, Andy Ostroy. It was co-edited and co-produced by Maddie Rosenberg and co-produced by Jen Hamoud. Our theme song was composed by Andrew Hollander and our logo was designed by Cricket Langell. And special thanks to Patricia Wind. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast and also follow or subscribe. Until next time, keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards and have a great week. Thank you.